Good afternoon, and welcome to Spokane Public Radio's Northwest Arts Review, a half hour exploring the people, places, and events forming the rich arts tapestry we enjoy here in the inland Northwest and our wider Intermountain Northwest region. I'm Jim Tevenin, pleased to be your guide on this journey. Today, Chris Massini introduces us to muralist Daniel Lopez. I explore how music can heal us with music therapist Kim McMillan. Dan Webster takes us back to the disco era in his film review. And we've got music from Floating Crowbar, the Celtic dance band for our next KPBX Kids concert. This is Northwest Arts Review. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Chris Massini. My guest today is artist Daniel Lopez. He's best known as a muralist with dozens of public murals across Spokane and the Inland Northwest, including American Jesus, a depiction of Jesus with a pixelated face on a building in downtown Spokane, and a Black Lives Matter mural featuring George Floyd on the back of the Shacktown Community Cycle Building in Spokane. But he's also an oil painter and will be opening a new solo show in the Wonder Building, which is located in North Spokane. The building recently reopened and will be hosting a reception as part of First Friday on March 5th. Daniel, thanks so much for chatting with me. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you for having me. So even if people don't know it, Everyone in Spokane has seen your artwork. Um, Your murals have really become ubiquitous over the last few years in the city. One of the things that I love about your work is the wide range of subjects. So, you know, there's religious imagery and political images, like I mentioned in the intro, but also really beautiful nature scenes like the birds underneath the freeway overpass and, you know, other hip hop and pop culture references. So how do you come up with the designs and and how do you decide which image is going to go in which location? Well, some of them are more personal. And that's the thing with the public art is I can't always be personal. (laughs) You know, it's um, when you're painting something in the public, yeah, you have to have empathy for the public. And so what you put out there, you know, is going to be received on a, a broader spectrum. And I, try not to be super personal um sometimes the political or religious stuff can be it can go against the grain and so one thing that when you do that you got to be ready to expect some kind of uh, pushback with that which is not always easy as an artist and so for a lot of these jobs sometimes uh i get customers or people that reach out to me and they want something specific and I work with them. And then on the other, the flip side of that is I will at times approach people and building owners and with designs that I've 
personally been inspired with beforehand. Mm. Yeah. And I will approach them with ideas to like, I would love to paint this on your building. And some people hear me out. Some people think I'm crazy. Maybe <laughs> I'm a little crazy. <laughs> and, but there's, there's a wide, wide spectrum of how these murals come into place. Because you brought up the public pushback, there was a pretty high-profile event this summer when you painted the George Floyd portrait and mural in downtown Spokane where someone threw paint on your mural after it had been painted. And I think your response to it was really fantastic and even helped make the message of that mural even stronger. Can you talk about what happened with that George Floyd painting? I sure can. Um, So I had painted that mural I think mid-June of last year and it was actually right before my birthday I knew it was a um, a bold statement but I didn't expect it to get defaced and so that was actually I painted it and then I went on my birthday weekend so I left for my birthday down to the Oregon coast and when I get back a reporter friend of mine Kevin Kim sent me a short video of a father and son in front of that mural. And he sent me that video and it was so encouraging that our black community was like, you know what, this doesn't stop us. And, and we're, we're still encouraged. And I hate, I hated the fact that that happened because I don't want our community to feel like we don't love them. You know, I'm a Hispanic man and, um, and it, it can be tough sometimes. And so I, I feel it. I understand it. And so I went through a roller coaster of emotions at the time. Um, but I just held my ground and I was like, I'm going to go pass this up. And I restored it, which actually, like you're saying, it added to the the image. Yeah. So just for folks who haven't seen it, the what you did was add one of your pixelated squares similar to the Jesus mural that folks are familiar with, sort of partially obscuring George Floyd's face. So it really became a powerful image of, you know, George Floyd being partially obscured like that. Yes. Well, let's um, pivot to your show. So your upcoming show at the Wonder Building is of oil paintings. So how is your work different in your oil paintings than what folks might be familiar with on your murals? Well, that's a great question. So I have been oil painting for only about two years now. It has been a huge journey for me as far as building a foundation on how to oil paint because it could be such an intimidating medium and then the big question what to paint (laughs) right (laughs) and so I would say a lot of my imagery is contemporary so it's of the times you know it's stuff that's happening now it's the world that we live in and I have a love for conceptual art that is where the idea is sometimes more important than the actual image. And I love being able to use my art to cause people to think. Being a a muralist, I love that people can connect to art. Like, oh, they get it, you know, or it's familiar. Um, I've got a couple like COVID pieces and everybody, there's no, (laughs) there's no way you miss that one. Yeah. (laughs) So, 
and so stuff like that. And um, I loved the human figure. I've been learning a lot about figurative painting, so I've got a few of those. And I'm, it's just been a learning process for me. It's been a very fascinating journey. So, you know, it's been almost a year since we've been able to have in-person art openings like this, but there's actually going to be a, mm-hmm. an in-person First Friday event at the Wonder Building. So what can people expect from, from that event? Well, we've got a great space. It's very spacious, so there's plenty of room for social distancing, and so it should be a great show. I think it's going to be really great. And then the following Saturday, I'll just be hanging out with my easel, real very uh, chill, relaxed time. I'm going to probably do a portrait, um, but I'll just I'll just be hanging out, uh, doing a, an oil painting and. I'll have a cool little setup with my brushes and my my oils and my palette, and people can see, you know, what what it looks like when I'm painting. Great. And that'll be from 12 to 3. My guest has been Daniel Lopez. He is a muralist and painter who has a new solo exhibition of oil paintings as part of First Friday on March 5th, 5 to 8 p.m. at the Wonder Building in Spokane. You can find more information about that opening and other First Friday events at downtownspokane.org slash First Friday. And you can see lots of Daniel's murals and oil paintings at his website, godfeedy.com. Daniel, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate it. In his documentary, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart?, director Frank Marshall shows us that the trio was more than mere disco, says Dan Webster in this review. One of the most energetic beginnings of any movie made in the 1970s was directed by John Badham. You may be familiar with it. It's titled Saturday Night Fever. Much of the power of its opening sequence comes via the soundtrack, Batham cuts from an aerial shot of Manhattan past the Verrazano Narrows Bridge to capture John Travolta's character, Tony Monero, strutting down Brooklyn's 86th Street. And his every step is matched by the infectious beat of the Bee Gees song, Stayin' Alive. Truth is, Batham's movie is inextricably linked with the music of the Bee Gees to the point where it's nigh impossible to separate one from the next. After all, the year Saturday Night Fever was released, 1977, marked the peak of the disco craze, which had been going on for much of the past decade. And Stayin' Alive, one of six Bee Gees songs that were incorporated into the movie, captures that disco feeling as well as any movie ever has. The resulting soundtrack became the second best-selling soundtrack album of all time, sitting atop the charts for 24 straight weeks. It came to represent not just the height of the disco era, but the height of the Bee Gees' popularity as well. Of course, that popularity didn't, couldn't last. By the early 1980s, musical tastes had changed, and pretty soon the term disco was followed in many quarters by the verb sucks. And by then, the Bee Gees themselves, who at that point had been performing as a trio for the better part of two decades, found themselves at what looked like a career dead end. Yet as director Frank Marshall makes clear in his documentary film, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? The Gibb brothers were far more than simply a disco band. Over the course of their career, they wrote more than a thousand songs in a variety of styles from soul to rock to yes, disco, 
20 of which gained the status of number one hits in the US and UK. To this day, they rank only behind the Beatles and the Supremes as the most successful band in Billboard charts history. Born on the Isle of Man, raised first in Manchester, England, and then in Australia, the brothers, elder brother Barry, born in 1946, and twins Robin and Morris, born three years later, began performing while still in their teens, preteens for the twins. Over the next few years, the trio not only began perfecting the three-part harmony that would serve them so well, but they began writing their own songs. By the late 50s, the band, at one point performing under the name We Johnny Hayes and the Blue Cats, was performing regular gigs. When the family immigrated to Australia in 1958, they began performing in hotels and clubs, scored the occasional television spot, and even began recording by then as the Bee Gees. It wasn't until they returned to England in the late 1960s and partnered with producer Robert Stigwood that the band began to find real success. There was a brief time when Barry and Robin squabbled, causing Robin to break away. As Morris explains in one archival interview, he typically acted as a go-between for his two older brothers, Robin, by a half hour. But they reunited and the hits followed. Their first U.S. number one, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, coming in 1970. And while they worked steadily throughout the decade, it was when they moved to Miami, began evolving their sound, discovering Barry's famous falsetto, that led to Saturday Night Fever, to their being enshrined in history, and to a career later as hit songwriters for the likes of Barbara Streisand, Dolly Parton, and Kenny Rogers. Marshall shows all this, combining never-before-seen archival footage, including interviews with the twins, Morris, who died in 2003, Robin, who died in 2012, and other musicians such as Eric Clapton, Noel Gallagher of Oasis, Nick Jonas of the Jonas Brothers, and Lulu, who besides having her own singing career, was married for six years to Morris. While showcasing much of the band's music, Marshall also documents how fame, ego, and the trappings of rock success were as much a part of the Bee Gees story as their various ups and downs in popularity. If the Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, does anything, though, it conveys how much regret Barry feels about being the sole surviving brother. At one point, he says, he'd give back all the success just to have his brothers back. Doubt him if you will, and who could blame you, you can't deny this, that the Bee Gees were far more than three guys who dressed up in sequins and danced to a disco beat. As Oasis guitarist Gallagher says, when you've got brothers singing, it's like an instrument that nobody else can buy, or in the case of the brothers Gibb, can even remotely emulate. For Spokane Public Radio, I am Dan Webster. Movies 101 host Dan Webster writes about movies and more for Spokane7.com. Movies 101 airs Friday evenings at 6.30 on KPBX and podcasts from SpokanePublicRadio.org, where you can also find this program, Northwest Arts Review. Our KPBX Kids Concerts are a grand tradition, and within that tradition is an annual dance party, for many years now featuring the Celtic band Floating Crowbar. This year, the performance is virtual, on-air, streaming, and via Facebook at 1 this Saturday afternoon, but the energy is genuine. Here's a sample of the Floating Crowbar sound.
combining Irish pipes, flute, whistle, banjo, and mandolin, as well as fiddle and guitar, the traditional Irish band Floating Crowbar is multi-instrumentalists Don Thompson and James Hunter, guitarist Rick Rubin, and fiddler Morgan Anderson. They provide the tunes for our next KPBX Kits concert this Saturday at 1, on air and online. Back in the earliest days of this program, we introduced you to Kim McMillan, music therapist and owner of Spokane's Center for Musical Therapy. Kim recently wrote an online article that spelled out the role music therapy plays in post-hospital rehabilitation for a variety of patients. And I thought this a good time to check back in with her. Our conversation began with a refresher on the roots of music therapy. Music therapy is a relationship built through music to affect change. And it's research-based, so there's over 70 years of research behind it. It started uh, with the World War I vets who came home from the war with what we now know is PTSD and also traumatic brain injury. They were very anxious. They couldn't focus. There was you know, those types of symptoms. And what they discovered was is that music played live it seemed to decrease their anxiety and their ability to focus and be present. And that was a re- real important discovery. Musical therapy, in your article, you uh, suggest that it really began to take off after the Second World War. Similar circumstances in that? Yeah. And then after the Second World War, we had the same thing with the vets coming back. Um, And one of the first relationships that was built in the United States was with the VA system as that developed. So um, there's a long relationship with music therapists being in the VA system in the hospitals across the United States. Also, there's a strong relationship with music therapists and with shiners across the United States. So it's very common to see music therapists in that system as well. Also, in um, their children's hospitals, we'll see that. And also hospitals that um, take care of cancer. Mm -hmm. We'll see that as well. The clients who you work with, you work with families and for the most part, though, you work with children in your musical therapy practice. Right. Um, right. This began as a movement to treat uh, PTSD after each of the world wars. Can you say anything about when it began to extend its reach into other parts of the population, especially toward children, and what kinds of conditions it's been aimed at? The research has been developed over time. And one of the areas that was developed alongside with um, what we just talked about was um, with developmental disabilities and then um, also mental health because mental health was a part of the, the vets coming home. So mental health, developmental disabilities developed together pretty much. And then eventually um, it was applied to children if you can remind us of the kinds of conditions, not, not in the hospital setting, but in your office setting or as you are having to do now in the Zoom setting, what are some mm-hmm. of the conditions that are uh, typically being treated with music therapy? Well, every child is different, so that's really important. 
So recently I had a child who had um, seizures and her family, this is a four-year-old child, and we did music therapy for a while and the, the family was checking into doing brain surgery so that the seizures would, would stop. And so at the end of August this year, last year, they decided to do that. And so she was at Seattle Children's Hospital during the surgery. And then um, afterwards, the occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, that intensive um, type of therapy happened afterwards. Also, music therapists were involved in the recovery process too. And then when she returned home, I worked with her. This is an area called neurological music therapy. Music therapists are trained and active participants in rehabilitation medicine. And so when she returned home, the left side of her body wasn't working so well. And so we were working to help her walk better. Um, Her speech was delayed or not working very well. And then her ability to attend to what was going on. So her attention was just a few minutes, if we were lucky. But as she progressed, her ability to walk got better, her ability to speak got better, and her ability to move that left arm seemed to work better, too. What would be some Um, of the, in, in a specific case like this, where there is a neurological recovery going on with a patient who, in this case, had uh, brain surgery, what are some of the musical activities that you find to be really beneficial, really key to... Thank you for cluing me into that one. <laughs> okay, so so, so then one of the things we would do is, is that she has a favorite song, and um, I would use a drum for her to... Um, we would be singing the song, and I had a small drum, and she would. I would be, have her um, hold on to a stick and then reach for the, the drum with that the arm that wasn't working as we were singing. Mm-hmm. Another thing we were doing was um, walking up and down the hall and she had to use her eyes and her left arm that wasn't working so good and reach for the drum as she was walking and while we're singing. Mm-hmm. That means that the brain is on, that all of the neurological connections are occurring at the same time. So that means that um, the brain is beginning to repair itself as you're walking, singing, and moving to a particular beat. You know, mm-hmm. um, as you're walking to the pace you would normally walk. And we're, so we're singing as we're doing that. And then and a particular song she, she liked that, that worked for her. That's one of the things we were doing. Mm-hmm. Another thing we were doing was um, she liked the bells. So we would set up these um, bells on a table and um, she would have to hit the bells with the arm that wasn't working and reach for them across midline. So like twinkle, twinkle, little star, she might reach across the left side Mm -hmm. and hit the bells as we're playing the melody. That's very difficult to do, by the way. Occupational therapists or physical therapists would tell you that that kind of recovery is very difficult Mm -hmm. to reach across and to get people to know that, because there's some left-sided neglect that's going on. Do you have surmises about, or thoughts about what might be going on? Are brain paths being 
restored, redirected, uh, rebuilt through these kinds of exercises? Exactly. Exactly. Parts of the brain are not working. And so the, the goal, as I'm thinking through things, is what, as I'm working, I'm thinking about how can we get the brain, all of the brain, to turn on. And one of the, the, the miraculous things about music is that when music, when it's sung and you're moving to it, it actually changes the chemistry of the brain. But the thing is, is that most therapies don't turn on the entire brain. Music, because it's processed in the brain globally, as is across um, the top of the brain, turns on the entire the entire brain globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you get this change in chemistry. When you walk, when you speak, or any of those types of activities, only one particular part of the brain is turned on. But when you work with music, the entire brain is turned in play. We'll have more of this conversation soon on Northwest Arts Review. Find out more about Kim and her work at musictherapyspokane.com. Thanks for listening to Northwest Arts Review. I'm Jim Tevenin. Help today came from Chris Massini. We're grateful as well for the contributions of Daniel Lopez, Kim McMillan, and Dan Webster. Floating Crowbar takes us out. Join us again next week for another Northwest Arts Review on Spokane Public Radio.